You are listening to the Compliance Conversations podcast by Healthicity. If you work in the healthcare industry, you know how crucial compliance is to your bottom line, your reputation, and the success of your organization as a whole. If this is your first time listening, welcome. A transcript of every Compliance Conversations episode can be found at www.healthicity.com resources, along with a ton of other thought leadership materials. You can add us to your RSS feed and iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Compliance Conversations. My name is CJ Wolf with Healthicity, and today our guest is Jenny Hamilton. Welcome, Jenny. Hi, CJ. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Our guest today, everybody, uh, has a lot of experience and expertise in clinical trials uh, research. And so I know that is an important topic in compliance, and she's going to share some some good insights, I think. But Jenny, before we kind of jump into that topic, we'd like to just hear from you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get involved in what you're doing and, and a little bit about about your professional life. Oh, sure. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, I'm a clinical research project manager at Barrow Neurologic Institute in Phoenix, Arizona, um, which is one of the top uh, neurological treatment and research facilities in the country. And in my role, I oversee the training and certifications of clinicians and research staff who perform um, specialized clinical assessments on patients with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, better known as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, We work on over 20 pharma industry trials and our team has um, trained and certified uh, 1200 uh, clinicians and staff in over 30 countries. So we're a busy group. Um, A little bit on my background, I started out in clinical research as a data manager and a study coordinator on Um, phase one oncology trials, which is definitely kind of hitting the refiner's fire um, to start out Um, because those are typically some of the more intense trials and they are higher risk for FDA audits. Um, And my career took a little bit different turn for a couple of years where I uh, managed or I was a project manager on a marriage and family therapy study at an academic research center. And then during COVID, I was a clinic coordinator uh, for a medical device study. And I got the opportunity to write several research protocols while our research operations were shut down. So that was an interesting time in clinical research because a lot of yeah. things went on pause. Um, but I got my start in healthcare. I was a volunteer in quality management at a big hospital in Portland, Oregon. And that was a really unique opportunity to see risk management up close and you know, one of my favorite things was I got to shadow the hospital leadership during a joint commission survey. So that, right. that's really bad. To, <laughs> that was really a, <laughs> an, an interesting experience. And I think it was, you know, it was really good to give me a, a good overview of what really happens in the hospital environment. Exactly. Well, that's, that's an exciting background and um, a lot of great experience. And I hear you when you said, you know, on the oncology stuff. So I spent some years at MD Anderson Cancer Center, though I wasn't directly over the, the clinical part of the clinical trials. I was involved in kind of the, the research billing um, and, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. But I, but I hear what you're saying with, you know, the importance of those types of trials 
you know, and just in general, before we get into kind of the the uh, compliance side of things, I, I'm interested if you have any thoughts, but I'll share some first on just the importance of clinical research. You know, we um, most of us take advantage of these advances in in medical uh, technology and in and, and drugs and uh, treatment. And a lot of that, you know, it comes from people who are willing to enroll in clinical trials, uh, sponsors who are willing to to sponsor the research. Uh, but it makes a huge difference in in the lives of, of individuals, and uh, I bet you're seeing that on a on a daily basis. Do you have any general thoughts just about the importance of clinical trials and that work in general? Yeah, it's it's such an important work, and you know, working in in ALS research is is has been eye opening because I think through about 2011 there were only two treatments available for ALS and they just added a couple of months wow. to life expectancy. And just in the past several years, we've had, well, actually in the last year, we've had two drugs approved. Um, wow. So, you know, it's giving, giving a little bit of hope and it's just amazing to see the, the leaps that technology, that medical technology is taking yeah. through clinical research. Absolutely. And, and because it's so important and because the decisions that are made either by regulatory bodies or clinicians rely on, you know, the, the excellence of the trial, how it's set up, you know, compliance to the protocol, um, you know, making sure patients are safe. There's a lot of safeguards, a lot of processes in place to make sure it's done right. And so maybe we can start there is, can you just share just a general oversight of who's providing oversight on clinical trials. I, there's lots of different parties involved, but, you know, kind of big picture for those, you know, we have a lot of compliance folks listening and, and some of them have experience in research and some of them might not, but who are the big players in oversight? Um, yeah, the FDA, of course, um, all clinical research trials have to be approved by the FDA before anything gets started um, as far as that. Um, of course, we also have, um, oh, like the IRB is, is one, yeah. right? like, so, and I, I apologize. I probably should have said, you know, there's external, but then there's also kind of internal, yeah. um, and, and, and we'll get to a little bit of that, but sorry, go ahead. If there's any, oh yeah. Yeah. No worries. No worries. Yeah. It's, we're, we are mindful of, you know, the FDA IRBs have a lot of say in what we do. Um, at the institutional level. And, right. you know, there are times that we go back and forth with the sponsor quite a bit on even just the protocol with yeah. different language for the site. Um, you know, we work on international studies. So we're also working with the European FDA uh, version of that. Gotcha. So, and then we're, of course, we're governed by institution guidelines and lots of, you know, international guidelines and just documents for, that give guidance for ethical research. Yeah, absolutely. All these different players, right? External, internal guidelines, like you said, sponsors, partners, um, all really, really important. So maybe we start there with the FDA. Um, you know, when I was working in an academic medical center, there were times that FDA would do audits. And I'm kind of curious if if you've ever been through an FDA audit, FDA audit you know, what did you learn? What are they looking at when they come in or, or anything involved with kind of FDA audits? Oh, sure. Yeah. In my first year in research, um, uh, on multi, uh, we were on an oncology trial. Uh, we did go through an FDA audit. 
Um, one of the interesting things is you may or may not get notification that the FDA is going to be on your doorstep. So in uh, the instance of our audit, we got a call Friday at noon and they were on our doorstep Monday first thing. So, oh yeah, so there's a lot of scrambling, a lot of long hours over the weekend as you're trying to pull together the documentation, make sure everything's in order um, just so that you're ready to do that. Uh, you know, as they go through, they'll be reviewing um, specific subjects. They really focus on informed consent um, yes. and subject eligibility. Um, training is a huge piece of what they look at because, you know, one of the requirements is that everyone is qualified by education, experience, and training to be gotcha. doing their roles and that they are only performing those roles that the site investigator has delegated authority to. Um, gotcha. And then they, of course, they look heavily at safety. So adverse events, serious adverse events, um, just making sure that protocols being followed and that patients are safe. Yeah. Are there certain risk factors that might prompt an audit um, that are more likely to prompt an audit than, than others? Or is it certain types of trials or anything in that regard that you're aware of? Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, you know, working on um, phase one studies, uh, they are higher risk for FDA audits just because that is the first time that many drugs are being given to patients. Yeah. Um, and so that is an important part. Um, they also, when they're looking at which sites to go to, because there may be dozens of sites working on a study, they will look at sites that are high enrolling. Gotcha. Um, and um, and you can usually expect um, an audit around the time that a drug is anticipated to go up for approval uh, for marketing okay. uh, with the FDA. Um, they will typically choose some sites to go for that. And then if they ever get a complaint from a patient or anyone um, that goes directly to the FDA, then um, they will go and, and look into that further. Gotcha. And you know, you're mentioning sites. And so just for the folks that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, for the folks who might not be as familiar with the details, a clinical trial, you know, might be, you know, it's it's looking at a certain variable of a disease process or a drug or a medical device. And the protocol's written, but you're enrolling people in all sorts of different sites if if available, right? Because you're trying to maximize enrollment. And so you might have a site in one state, another site in another state. And so when you're referring to kind of those high enrolling sites, it's it's the sites where there's more people entering into the clinical trial. Is that right? Exactly. And, you know, there are institutions that have large research programs and they have the staff and the bandwidth to take on a lot of patients and they might be uh, more central centers that people look to, um, you know, for example, like Mayo Clinic would be you know, that type of site. Gotcha. Um, yeah. You mentioned informed consent. Can you just, you know, we talk about in, in healthcare, we know we talk about informed consent all the time, right? Like if I'm going to get a, a surgery done, the doctor will describe, okay, here are the risks, here are the benefits, here are the risks if you don't do the surgery. Um, and then you sign a piece of paper usually. How is that different in research? Um, it, it is a very different process in research, to be sure. Uh, you know, I remember when I had I had to have an emergency appendectomy and I'm signing the informed consent form as I'm being wheeled down the gurney down to surgery. And right. that that type of thing is not typically going to happen in clinical research. Um, 
they there is a big emphasis on when we're doing uh, informed consent with patient on something called the therapy the therapeutic misconception, which is you know this clinical trials are research we're testing a new drug and trying to get information about it and you know odds are that the patient is going to have minimal benefit from it you know we we always you know, hope and pray that they are going to benefit from it. But we need to right. be, we think we need to be very clear with the patients up front is this is research and this is science and this is more of a service than for them to expect a benefit from. Um, they have to uh, sign consent before any study visits are done. Um, they should be given it ahead of time to review and to discuss with family. And then usually the physician will go over the um, consent with the patient, which has the risks and the benefits. Um, and it has information on where they would go if um, they have any um, questions or concerns or, and it describes what happens if, if you know, heaven forbid they're injured during the trial. So there's a lot more information and we just have to be very, very careful to, con- um, to have, to discuss it very carefully with them and to document that. And then anytime yeah. the protocol is updated, um, the patients have to be reconsented. Yeah. So that that can be tricky. Yeah. And so um, and, and my understanding is that, you know, so the informed consent will be different for every trial. Right. Like in the hospital, it's like, you know, you might have some sort of uh, template that the doctor fills out risks and benefits. It's the same form for any kind of surgery, maybe. But in clinical trials, it's specific to that trial, what's being tested. You know, if you're in, you might be in a, a blinded study where you might not get the medication or the, the medicine. And so um, right. you have to recognize that. And, and if you're being obviously being treated for a, a disease, then you might not be getting any you know, therapeutic benefit from the drug, like you were saying. And so you have to be specific, right? And the informed consent as you mentioned, has to be updated if any of those things change for that trial. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, usually the sponsors will send an informed consent to the sites, but it has to go through IRB approval. And sometimes that has to be adapted. So I've worked at Catholic institutions. um, And so there are, you know, different um, issues with, for example, birth control, um, where the consents have to be adjusted um, per the institution um, to fit those requirements. So, gotcha. Well, this is great. We're let's let's take a short break, and then when we come back, I want to maybe start talking about the IRB a little bit. So, stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back. If it seems like the OIG is constantly making work plan updates, it's because well, they are. Who has the time to stay up on all those new changes? We do. Each month, CJ Wolf issues a monthly OIG work plan e-brief to make it easy for you to keep up with all the updates coming your way. Head over to healthicity.com slash resources to check out e-briefs, webinars, blogs, and so much more. Now let's get back to CJ for the rest of this episode of Compliance Conversations. Welcome back, everybody. We are here with Jenny Hamilton. She's telling us all about clinical trial research and some of the regulations and oversight that that goes on. And and we were we were talking about informed consent. And, and she mentioned that you know those documents have to be individually approved by the IRB. Jenny, tell us what an IRB is first, and then maybe just kind of the role that it plays. 
Sure. So an IRB is an institutional um, research board. Um, every uh, institution will have one. Um, sometimes they are affiliated with the institution. Other times, um, some studies are starting to use central IRBs. But their role is to make sure that the research is conducted in a way that protects patients and that follows you know, the institutional guidelines. Um, it's made up of um, both physicians and um, there will usually be a just average citizen type of member on it. And yeah. every protocol, every consent form, every document that will be used in the trial will go through the IRB and has to be officially approved. Um, in, and that even includes information that's given to patients. So if a site thinks that, oh, it would be helpful to have this little you know, explanation guide for the patient, that actually has to go through the IRB and be officially approved in order to share that with the patient. Yeah. Gotcha. That's really helpful. Um, and the uh, you mentioned the types of things they approve, like are the protocol, the informed consent. Do they ever deal with so like if and, and we're going to talk a little bit more about deviations in a second, but do they deal with things during the trial as well? Or is it mostly like now this is all these are all the steps that have to be done before you can begin the trial that goes through IRB. Are they involved in anything during and then after? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they will monitor um, protocol deviations. They will also want to be informed of um, serious adverse events, particularly if it's something that is related to the drug but was not expected. Um, okay. It was not an expected side effect. Um, they're going to be involved throughout the trial, um, and they are providing a heavy level of oversight at the institutional level. Um, and they will be involved also as the study is closed. If for some reason the study is ended um, uh, ahead of what is expected, um, they will need to be informed as well. Gotcha. So you, you mentioned protocol deviations. Can you tell us just what is a protocol, first of all, and then maybe describe a little bit about deviations and how they might be handled? Yeah. So protocol is basically the instructions for the study. It's also going to include the scientific background um, and um, reason for conducting the study, but it's going to con um, contain all the information about, you know, when visits are to be conducted, what tests are required at what point in the study. They're also going to include instructions if there's, you know, uh, with cancer drugs where you're having infusions, if there's an effusion reaction that occurs while the medication is being dosed. Um, and then it's going to um, also explain how the data is going to be handled and analyzed on the back end. So it's a very comprehensive document. Um, you know, when you're involved in the actual clinic operations, you're mostly focused on, you know, all of the instructions and of what to do with the visits. And it, it's they can be quite complex. Um, they can be, you know, maybe 10 pages. I've worked on protocols that are over 600 pages. Wow. Yeah. How do you keep track of that? I mean, that's got to be hard. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, anytime the protocol is updated, you know, you have to be trained on it initially. And then every time it's updated, you have to be trained on it again. So, you know, that's printing out a new copy to, uh, you know, track the new the new changes. Yeah. yeah. And so if so, like a lot of trials, um, you have people who are really in the know on the protocol and then you probably have people who are like if a patient is coming through and maybe they're getting a CT scan or they're, you know, they're getting an infusion, like are kind of frontline nurses and other personnel taking care of patients, 
and they might not be as knowledgeable about the details of the protocol or tell us a little bit about that, about who the, the patient or the, the subject, the enrollee would be interacting with. I, I'm sure it can probably vary. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, when in, when we were in oncology, you know, obviously that they're going to go to the infusion clinic to receive the drug and those nurses, you know, are not going to be familiar with the protocol. And that's where the role of a research coordinator or a research nurse is very important because um, we will communicate that information to the nurse so that they're aware of, you know, what the drug they're giving, what tests and vitals and whatnot they need to um, be taking throughout. Um, So there's really close communication so that they understand what we need from them, um, but they don't have to be, you know, officially trained on the protocols typically. Gotcha. And so that nurse coordinator, because what I'm getting at is how do people know when there is a protocol deviation? Like if I'm a frontline nurse, I might, and I'm not, in, you know, intimately aware of all the details of a 600 page document. How do I know if the protocol has been deviated? Are people doing audits? Um, are people like, do you see what I'm saying? How, how yeah, are you yeah. identified? Yeah. Um, so deviations aren't typically, um, uh, don't usually get noticed at the time because a lot of them will be like, you know, take a blood pressure um, one hour after the infusion plus or minus five minutes. And so right. if they do it at seven minutes after the hour, that's a deviation. Um, but there we have every study has um, monitors that sponsors typically um, contract with organizations that provide monitoring services. And so they come through usually about every month or so and they, you know, review data. They look at things that have been happening with the trial to make sure that we're following all of the protocol um, requirements. And so if they find any discrepancies, then they will bring that to the attention of the coordinator. And then we'll work on, um, you know, either providing the explanation, providing the correction, or, you know, if there's more action needed. Gotcha. And so that's kind of what's known as a site monitoring visit. It's it's more of... Um, not you correct me if I'm wrong. It's not necessarily like an external agency. We already talked about an FDA audit, but it's more of like an internal, like the the sponsor or somebody hires or has people to just monitor compliance with the protocol. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And they're known as clinical research associates, um, and they are specially trained to go in and to look at all of the information and make sure that the studies being conducted, you know, the way that it's supposed to, that data is being you know, collected uh, appropriately and recorded appropriately. Gotcha. So are there, in this, if there aren't, just let me know, are there certifications for people in the realm of clinical trials? You, you said you're a clinical research coordinator. Um, there's probably people who audit and do that sort of thing. Are, are you aware of those types of certifications? Yeah, so um, I hold, I'm a certified clinical research coordinator. There's two organizations that provide certifications in clinical research. One is ACRP and the other is SOCRA, S-O-C-R-A. Um, okay. And they pro- both provide certifications um, for people that work on clinical trials. They provide them for coordinators, for the clinical research associates, um, even site investigators. Uh, can receive certifications uh, for working on clinical trials. It's not something that's required, but you know there, it is often re- um, requested in you know when you're applying for jobs that they're looking for that. 
Yeah. Now that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and on the, on the general compliance side. So those of you who are listening that are familiar with the healthcare compliance association, there's also a certification uh, called certified in healthcare research compliance. It's, it's different than what Jenny's talking about. It's more, um, are you familiar with things like clinical research billing? Are you familiar mm-hmm. with privacy standards, HIPAA and, and what trumps what in, in the data privacy in research? Um, IACUC, which is, you know, if there's animal uh, type of involvement in, in studies um, and those sorts of things. So that I, sounds like that's probably a little different than, you know, these very specific uh, certifications that, that you're referring to as well. Yeah, yeah. These certifications are based on um, ICH, uh, GCP, uh, the international governing documents, also FDA regulations. Um, So it's they're really testing to see if you have an in-depth knowledge of of what the requirements are. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, We're getting kind of towards the end. I want to mention one other thing and then also see if you have comments on this as well as any kind of um, closing comments. So I, you know, have had family members who have had certain conditions where we want to look for a trial. So I've always gone to clinicaltrials.gov, which is a website where I think almost all clinical trials are kind of registered. There may be some exceptions there, but um, you can search by location. You can search by disease type. You can search by intervention. Um, Are you familiar with that site? And do you have any thoughts about it? Yeah, that is a great site. Um, And that is the number one place to go to look if you're looking for a clinical trial. Um, and then, you know, if you're near an academic medical center, you know, you can reach out to them as well. But a lot of times they're going to point you at the clinicaltrials.gov. It's it's a great place to start. Yeah. And like it'll list out a lot of the the information. It'll tell you. I don't think the whole protocol's on there, but uh, no. it, you know, it, it'll list out, you know, a summary of this is what we're studying, you know, group A will be randomized to this arm, group B with this arm or whatever. So you can really learn a little bit more uh, about that. Um, And then, like I said, you can usually find uh, the sites that are enrolling, you know, some trials are on there and it says, oh, we're done enrolling. Uh, We're in the middle of the trial. And and so you can kind of get a sense of of where things are. Plus, if you're just interested in learning, you know, uh, academically about what's going on, you know, sometimes people wait until things get published in the medical literature, which is a good place, right? Because the right. stuff has to, you know, withstand kind of peer review. But clinicaltrials.gov is a great place just to kind of see what's going on in the field and, and what people are researching. And it's, I think it's fascinating. It, it really is. And there's so many new, amazing, you know, with stem cell therapies and gene therapies and, you know, uh, yeah. immunotherapies. There's so many new... Uh, breakthroughs in, in medicine and it's exciting to see what's on the horizon yeah and it's both drugs and devices um and it it's not just always you know like cancer obviously is a really important area but like even depression and and behavioral health and uh there's there's trials now on uh psychedelics and you know you know it's just it's a scientific uh playground <laughs> and i shouldn't say it that way it's not a playground <laughs> But it's a, a scientific, uh, you know, community, you know, exploring what can be done uh, in the in the field of science. And I, I just think it's wonderful. Um, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Jenny, this has been so amazing. Are any last minute thoughts or uh, comments, things that I didn't ask that you think uh, 
people might need to know about when it comes to research uh, compliance and those sorts of things? Um, you know, this has been a great uh, discussion. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about clinical research because it is such an important part of, of the medical world. Um, you know, I am really, I really respect the patients that sign up for these clinical trials because, you know, they're, they're doing something really selfless in, in participating because they know that the benefit, they may never get benefit from this, but they know that they're contributing to the body of knowledge. And, you know, we've had a couple of ALS trials stop um, because the drugs were deemed not having any effect or any impact on the, yeah. on the disease. And those are, those are tough days in research, but yet it, teaches us, okay, let's not go down that path anymore. Let's look at different paths. So, you know, whether a trial is successful or not, it's really important knowledge that goes into, you know, developing treatments. And, you know, hopefully one day we'll get to the end of cancer and, you know, the ALS patients will have, you know, good treatments that will prolong their lives um, and give them good quality of life. So yeah. it's, yeah. it's an important work to be involved in. And I really appreciate the patients who, who sign up and, and take part in these. Yeah, I completely echo that. And, and on that note, um, historically, a lot of research has been done on white males. And there's a lot of effort over the last many, many years and into the future of getting a more diverse um, kind of patient uh, background and demographic. There's a lot of international um, excitement, right, in getting trials done in places that normally have not been done, for example, in Africa. And there's some places that are really booming with with um, with clinical research because it's important because different uh, genetic makeup might respond differently. Uh, you know, gender might exactly. respond differently. And so in, enrolling people uh, from a diverse background is really important. And you've probably seen that too, right? Yeah. And, you know, we work at, on studies in over 30 countries. And, you know, in recent years, there's a push to kind of bring our research together now that it's more of an international experience um, and uh, uh, to bring together all the different efforts. You know, we're we work with sites in China, um, in Japan, in Israel, um, Ukraine, Russia, Turkey. It's it's really exciting to see all the places where clinical research is going. Yeah, I was on a site the other day that was the main registry for clinical trials in the continent of Africa um, and was just fascinated by by what the work being done there as well. So exciting times. Yeah, definitely. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for being willing to share your time today and to share your expertise. Um, we really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be on. You're doing well, great. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, and thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode. If you're liking these episodes, please share with friends, um, subscribe and, and spread the word. And uh, as always, I invite you to reach out to me if you know of a guest or, or a topic that you'd like to have uh, covered. Um, and until then, be safe, everybody. Thanks for listening. Compliance Conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthicity.com.